You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's 22 minutes before 3 o'clock. Dr. Chris Smith is on the line. He's the Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge. You know him as the Naked Scientist and answering your science-related questions on 011-883-0702. Your SMS is on 31702. And you can send us a WhatsApp message on 072-702-1702. Dr. Smith, good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Hi, Googs. How are you? Very well, thank you. And how are you? Yeah, not bad. The weather's improving. It's nice and sunny, so I'm beginning to make a bit of vitamin D, and your mood elevates, doesn't it, when the when the weather improves? Yeah, we, we're we're making great strides. We're trying to vaccinate people here in the UK, so our our COVID cases are dropping finally. Yeah. So what's what's not to like apart from the fact the world is still in the grip of a pandemic, and many countries have yet to lay their hands on any vaccines. Yes. So, yeah, difficult times. Speaking of vaccines, my question is around uh, the information or the latest that we've heard about the AstraZeneca Phase 3 uh, trial. Um, AstraZeneca, which had been suspended, I think it was in three countries as a precautionary measure because there were, I think, 25, quite a handful, small number of uh, suspected cases of blood clotting. But it seems from the Phase 3 numbers coming out today that those have been pretty impressive. 79% efficacy against symptomatic disease. 100% efficacy against severe disease and hospitalization. Um, for us, you know, in South Africa, we're yet to, uh, to receive um, the AstraZeneca vaccine. In fact, we had received it and now we've given all our doses to the AU. How do we read this news? Obviously, it was uh, the trial conducted in the US, Chile and Peru, and there were concerns about the vaccine's efficacy for our particular um, variant. But is this good news for for everyone, including South Africa, this news about the phase three trial of the AstraZeneca vaccine. What happened is that actually 18 countries in Europe decided to temporarily suspend use of this vaccine. And they did that because of an apparent association with a blood clotting problem, not the kinds of blood clots that occur in your legs a very specific and quite rare form of blood clotting called cerebral sinus venous thrombosis. And this is where inside the head, the brain has these venous sinuses, which mm -hmm. it drains blood out of the brain and into. And they do occasionally form blood clots. But they saw a significant number, they said, of these blood clots in younger people. And the worry was, is this being caused by vaccination? Now, the problem is that when you're vaccinating people on the scale of millions, like they are with the AstraZeneca vaccine at the moment, it's gone into 17 or 18 million people across Europe. Then with that level of uptake of a vaccine, you are going to see some people who develop certain problems just by chance having the coincidental administration of the vaccine at the same time as they develop one of these problems. The headache not just for those patients, but the headache for the regulator is they've then got to work out whether the vaccine caused that to happen or whether it was just down to chance. And that's where trials come in and looking at data and looking to see if you can account for the fact this has happened uh, as happening by chance or whether this is actually occurring more often than it should do on mm -hmm. the basis of chance and may therefore be linked to the vaccine. Those sorts of analyses were carried out last week and as a result of that, the European Medicines Agency, EMA, as well as the UK regulator, the MHRA, both said, well, there's no evidence linking at the moment AstraZeneca's vaccine to blood clotting. And therefore, this should continue because all the time that you are not vaccinating people with this vaccine, 
you are placing a significant number of people at high risk of developing COVID. And COVID, 30% of the time, causes problems with blood clots. So you're placing people at risk of severe disease and at risk of death by not vaccinating them in order to protect them from a tiny theoretical risk of a very rare side effect. That's why they've now reversed that. And most of the countries that initially said they were not going to be using the vaccine for a while have now reversed that decision and they've reinstated their vaccine program. Mm -hmm. The problem is that uh, there are also now various variants floating around. We're aware of those. People are tracking those. And one of them in particular, the so-called South Africa variant, although we're trying to get away with or get away from labeling things after countries, because at the end of the day, these are just genetic code changes in viruses. They're nothing to do with the countries. It's just where it was first picked up. And we know that the changes which are in some of the variants circulating in South Africa, as well as in Brazil and, and in some parts of Europe now, are sufficient to endow the virus with resistance to the protection conferred by these vaccines and for that reason people are being a bit more cautious about how they roll out these vaccines in the face of those variants until they know what the level of conferred protection is because then we'll know whether or not they will work or not and we don't know for sure yet what the level of protection conferred by the AstraZeneca vaccine is against one of the particular variants that was detected in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, the study that was at the University of the Witwatersrand was quite a small study and it didn't have the power to study what the impact is on older people. It was merely looking for uh, severe disease in younger people and it couldn't detect that, but it did still show that those people caught coronavirus uh, when they'd been vaccinated. That doesn't mean they would not have got severe disease. It was looking at the wrong group of people, really. You need to look at older people and have a healthy proportion of those in your stu study sample in order to really test the power of a vaccine to protect against uh, severe disease or death in older people in the face of, of um, a variant like the South African variant. So I think at the moment we're still testing all of this and trying to establish exactly where we stand. Mm. Chris, in general, when we look at you know potential side effects for a medication um, or any kind of medical treatment, and for instance, I made the example of if anyone's ever taken a contraceptive, be it the injectable or the pill or um, you know the copper uh, UID, you you know they or even if you've ever taken a paracetamol, if you read the pamphlet there is a, a list of uh, potential side effects and some of them are more severe than others or, but also listed as more uh, likely than others. How do we measure the, the risk um, of, you know, how should we make sense of as we're hearing about potential side effects or as we're learning whether side effects are linked to a vaccine, how do we make sense of the, those numbers? Because often it's reported as a number. Um, or the risk of, um, you know, what, what, what that side effect is. Um, how do we make sense? And not just for vaccines, just in general. What should we know or understand about what a potential side effect will be or how it works in the body? Well, when trials are carried out, and we began this program with you alluding to the results published from the US this week, and that uh, adds further evidence of safety. But remember, the US trial is only on a few tens of thousands of people. AstraZeneca's vaccine has gone into millions of people who we're now following up. And this is the crucial answer to the question you just asked, which is, how do we do post-marketing follow-up? Once a drug has gone through clinical trials, those trials will have been conducted on much smaller numbers of people than when it goes into the population at large. So what's the mechanism for feedback? And the answer is that there is something called a yellow card system. And when someone has a medicine, has a healthcare product, has a vaccine, if there are side effects, people self-report those side effects 
it doesn't matter how severe they are. If they have any side effects, they are reported. And in, in the UK, for example, we have got an army of people who will follow up on those reports and they will look for any kinds of patterns, they will look for associations, and they'll look for things that might be occurring at a disproportionately high level than you would expect just on the basis of chance. And if they see those kinds of patterns, then they can intervene, and they can intervene in a number of ways. One of them is that they can get a drug completely stopped while they investigate further, or they can issue a caution saying, we've noticed that in this group of people, this side effect might happen more often, you should use this on your doctor's advice, for example. And uh, what the EU did was the fairly draconian, let's stop giving this vaccine while we investigate. But actually, the evidence we have is that for every, uh, let's say, 100,000 people over the age of 50 that you don't vaccinate at the moment, that's going to lead to between 5 and 15 deaths every day. And so that's why it would have been better for the EU countries that did this to say, we will carry on with the vaccination while we investigate because it would have saved more deaths from COVID than it saved from people developing blood clots, which we think is a very small number. So the answer is there's a very healthy feedback system that investigates very thoroughly and very carefully to pursue drugs, drug side effects and impacts on the people who use them for the, in, in order to have a healthy, transparent dialogue and a healthy pharmaceutical relationship between the companies that make these agents governments that regulate the agents and the public that consume the agents. Mm. It's uh, 13 minutes before 3 o'clock. We are joined by Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, answering your questions on 011 or on SMS on 31702. Dennis and Fourways, we see you. Mandla in Pretoria and Monique, we will come back and get your questions answered. In a- 702. The Naked Scientist. Ten minutes before three o'clock, yes, we have the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, on the line and taking your calls on 011-883-0702 as well as the SMSs on 31702. Let's go to Four Ways where Dennis has a question. Dennis, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, ma'am. Dennis, yeah. Yes, what is your question? Yes, thank you. My question is, can scientists succeed to create vacuum on Earth? And related to that, as the universe expands, is there a possibility that we can have vacuum being created in space? Thank you. I'll listen on the radio. Hmm. Thank you, Dennis. Dr. Smith? Hi, Dennis. Well, we can try to make a vaccine, uh, a vacuum uh, on Earth, but actually you can tell where my brain is, can't you? Um, we, we can try to make a vacuum on Earth, but you can never get it perfect, but you can get pretty close. And even space isn't a perfect vacuum. If you were to go out into space, uh, in the space around the Earth, you would find an atom in every cubic meter or so of space. So space is not completely empty. There is no perfect vacuum where there is nothing there. Um, but yes, I mean, you can get pretty close in space. You just have a box and open it, and then you've got roughly one atom per cubic kilometer. I think that's the currently accepted figure, give or take. We've also got uh, Mandla in Pretoria North. Mandla, good afternoon. You have a question about frogs. Hey, good afternoon. Good to tell you. Very well, thank you. I'm good, I'm good. Um, the question I have for Dr. Chris is, well, okay, I live in a place which is very far from any water source, like a river or a dam. But I'm curious, like every time there's a storm, not even like a hectic storm, you'll find frogs in your yard. So I just want to know where do these frogs <laughs> come from? Because they're not like tadpoles. Some of them are fully grown. So I just want to know where do these things come from? I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. Hi, Mandela. The answer is that um, frogs only spend part of their life in water. 
and they return to water only to reproduce. The part of their life they spend in water is when they are an egg, as frog spawn, and then a tadpole. Those tadpoles then metamorphose into a fully grown frog. Frogs leave the water and they live on land. They're amphibian, amphibians, they're cold-blooded, and they therefore look for cool, damp environments where they can hang out and not get fried by the sun. But they prey on insects and things like that, so they'll, they'll find places that are ideal to hang out where there's food, but they're not oblig obliged to live in water. That's something of a myth. They only return to water when they want to mate, and so it, they, they will travel far and wide in order to seek out the best food sources and the best habitats to live in and hang out during the year. And they will know where ponds form seasonally, at least long enough, for example, after heavy rain to lay some frog spawn and for their tadpoles to rear. And even if that pond then dries up once the tadpoles have turned into frogs, it doesn't matter because they're off into the undergrowth. They live in sewer pipes, in down pipes. They, they find cool, damp areas where they can hide out, where, where there will be a ready supply of food. And that doesn't mean it has to be near a pond. Uh, we have a question on WhatsApp from Mshon uh, Pemi. says, please ask the naked scientist why kids never wake up with red eyes, but adults do. Uh, in my case, it's usually because I had a heavy night the night before. Uh, always drink responsibly. Um, no, I mean, the thing is that uh, adults are, are more likely to have other health conditions. We are more likely to overdo it, stay up late, have a late night maybe have a few drinks as well. So there's a range of reasons why adults might do that. But we tend to look after kids. We tend to make sure that they behave themselves and get plenty of beauty sleep. And so as a result, they tend to uh, to not wake up with bleary eyes because they a, haven't been overindulging or overdoing it. But we're doing that for them to make sure they have a nice home to live in often, aren't we? We also have Monique in Kempton Park. Monique, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Gooks and uh, Dr. Chris. Mm -hmm. My question Hi, is Monique. about a lingering... Hello. My question is about a lingering smell in my nose. It happened again this weekend when I had to clean up my cat's vomit. It was a very, very pungent, stinky thing. And even after I cleaned it up and cleaned out everything, and I was even in another room, I could still smell it in my nose. Is it my imagination or has the scent stuck in my nose for a while? Is it even possible? Oh, I hope it hasn't stuck in your nose, Monique. That sounds very, very unpleasant. Um, I don't think it has. I think it's probably your imagination. We know that the smell system is what's called plastic, as in you can train the smell system. And if you present really very powerful, strong odors, then those odors can actually make the pathways that decode those odors become a bit more active than normal and distort the flavor or smell or scent of other things, at least for a while, because it's almost like you've overworked one element of the smell system a bit for a while, and it bends and, and remolds it a bit in terms of how it responds to other smells, at least for a while. So it may be that you're not actually smelling the thing you think you're smelling. You are smelling normality, but your smell system has been affected slightly by what you had to smell for a while, and it's making you experience normality a bit differently for a while and so your, your brain is focusing on it and now you're thinking oh, I can still smell that awful smell it might be that's what it is it should go away that's the good news it should it should recover with time what I would advise you to do is uh, go and get some fresh air and make sure that you have removed all traces of the offending material from both your person your house your environment but also then go and get some fresh air and smell some nice things that have a nice strong smell that you like the smell of, like strawberries, that kind of thing. 
things that are nice, pleasant smells that you can remind yourself what normality is and then hopefully it'll all reset back to normal and the bad experience will go away. Thank you. Um, Dr. Smith, just following on Monique's question about um, uh, smells and you speaking about the smell system. So what happens if, for instance, if you've ever gone to look at perfumes or anything that's fragranced, you get given a tub or just a little bit of coffee beans. Um, does that help? Like you were saying, you, sometimes the system can be overloaded. What do the coffee beans do if you've been smelling a bunch of things and it's all starting to kind of smell the same? What does the coffee do? Is there any science behind that? I've never heard of using coffee, but that's quite an interesting approach. And it's a bit like if you go on a wine tasting trip to some of South Africa's stupendously good vineyards, for example, that uh, you would normally have some kind of palate cleanser between the drinks that you were trying, even if it's just water, so that you can clear your mouth of all of the residue, because otherwise you end up making a cocktail of all these different wines and volatiles and flavors in your mouth at once. Some of them are more long-lived as odorants than others. And this is because the molecules are different sizes, their chemistry is different, so their charges are different, and these all make an, an, an impact on how well they get into your tissues, dock onto the receptor in your nose to alert the nose to the presence of a smell, and, and therefore how long they, they linger for in your smell system. So washing out the system is one good way to to do that with water and wine for example but if you've been smelling things then having fresh air a complete reset is the best way to do it because then you remove all of the molecules that may or may not have, have docked with receptors and also it resets everything back to normal a good way of thinking about this is like your eyes getting used to the dark when you first come out of a dark room the normal daylight can be dazzlingly bright until your eyes readjust and similarly if you wear a pair of tinted glasses and then take them off when you first take them off, all the colours look a bit strange because you've been stimulating your retina with the wrong combinations of colours. And so normality looks a bit weird for uh, 30 seconds or so until the retina resets itself. It's exactly the same here. Perhaps the presentation of a dominant scent like coffee beans, which don't, I wouldn't have thought, have odorants in them that feature in average perfume mixes. It's a good way of just flushing out all of the perfume molecules and resetting the, the receptor activity so that you can then smell something with a, a new nose again when you come back. Hmm. Dr. Smith, always a pleasure chatting to you. That is the Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge, Dr. Chris Smith, who is the Naked Scientist.